morning, everyone. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter. This morning we begin our new sermon series on the book of 1 Peter. It will take us all the way through the month of September. We are going to be looking at great detail at the book of 1 Peter and what the Lord speaks to us as people through this book. Now, as I was uh, doing study and looking through 1 Peter, I realized how many parallels there are in 1 Peter to the book of Numbers. As you remember, in our sermon series last year through the book of Numbers, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, constituted them into a new nation, And then they were exiles journeying through the desert. In the book of 1 Peter, what we have is a letter addressed to exiles. Addressed to those who have been taken from their homeland, as it were, and are at this moment journeying through a desert land in which they are going through hardship, in which they are going through deprivation, but ultimately one in which they are promised that they will make it home. This letter is written to mostly Gentile converts. Well, we cannot rule out that there are probably also Jewish people that were in the churches that were receiving this letter, but... As we go through, we would see that it's probably addressed to Gentile converts. And in the first verse, we see specifically it was written to churches that are in modern day Turkey. This letter was written to go to these different cities, to the churches that were there, and to be read almost on a circuit. So it was a letter that wasn't written specifically to one church, but it is written to the church in general, to the church throughout Turkey or Asia Minor. So as we turn our attention now to God's Word, let us hear it as those who have been called out of this world to live as exiles. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Benthia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let us pray. Father God, we come to You now at this time and we ask, O Lord, that as we begin this series through the first letter of Peter, that we would hear it as exiles. That we would see it as a guide that it might bring us home. And we pray it all in Christ's holy name. Amen. Like many of you, I am sure, I spent some time this week doing a little self-evaluation. 
It's natural, I suppose, at the end of the year to think back on what you did or what you didn't do and strive to make at least a few improvements. You have a few days off of work, a few weeks off of school, a little downtime, and your thoughts begin to focus on how things might be different. As you eat your leftover Christmas cookies, you might begin to think, you know, I need to go on a diet. As you lounge around in your pajamas until noon, you imagine yourself in the new year waking up at 5 a.m. every morning to work out. Whether you're a resolution person or not, I'm sure that you have spent at least some time thinking about how 2019 might be different from 2018. The catch, though, at least for those who would claim to follow Christ, is that He is often leading us in a direction that is different from the rest of the world. The common path for those seeking something new for 2019 might look something like go over to Barnes & Noble, buy yourself a self-help book, employ some more self-discipline, and achieve a little self-actualization. Through greater reliance upon yourself, you will achieve a greater you. Yet the path that we are called to has a different source of wisdom than self-help books. It has a different source of power than self-discipline. And it has a different purpose than becoming the best version of yourself that you can be. In fact, throughout the Word of God, those who would seek to follow Christ are called foreigners, strangers, aliens, sojourners. We are told that here we have no lasting city. We are told that we are citizens of a different country. We are described as those who are seeking a better country, a heavenly one prepared for us by our God. As verse 1 of our text says, we are exiled. We are a people who are living away from our homeland for a period of time. And as such, we are called to do things a little bit different than the rest of the world. Because we are foreign, we will have foreign purposes from the world. We'll have foreign motivations. We'll have foreign goals for the year ahead. And what we'll see in our text for this morning is that as exiles in this world, we must trust God's Word as our guide. We must trust His work as our motivation, and we must trust His purposes for our goals for 2019 and onward. Now once I went on a mission trip down to the country of Honduras in Central America, And on the way down, I was separated from my team because of an overbooked flight. Everyone else on my team made it to the rendezvous point in Honduras on time where they met the guide that was to take us out to where we would be staying for the week. There was no way for me to call. There was no way for me to make contact with the group that I was supposed to meet there. And I was flying into Honduras blind into the city of San Pedro Sula, which, if you Google it and trust Google, is considered the most dangerous city in the world. When I finally made it to San Pedro, I knew that I needed a guide. 
It's not a place that you want to go into without knowing where you're going or who you can trust or how, who you can ask to get where you need to be. Thankfully, a guide was sent to pick me up at the airport. Unfortunately, he didn't speak English and I didn't speak much Spanish. So I just had to trust that this man wasn't kidnapping me, but that he was truly my guide to take me where I needed to be. Similarly, as exiles in a foreign land, we too need a guide or we will get lost. We need help to navigate through this world. In verse 1 of our text, we are introduced to our guide. There it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Following the convention of the day, Peter begins his letter by introducing and identifying himself. So often in our letters, we wait to sign our name to the very end. But at the time, they began their letters by saying, this is who it is from. It is from me, Peter. And in these few short words, we learn some very valuable information about who has written this letter. First, we learn that it was written by Peter, a first century fisherman turned disciple of Jesus Christ. As we know, Peter was not his birth name. His parents named him Simon. But Jesus gave him a new identity. In John chapter 1, we read that when Simon is called to be a disciple, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter, which in English means rock. The Lord gave Peter this name because it was through this man that the foundational rock-solid confession of the church would first be uttered. For Peter was the first to declare the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is the first to preach the gospel message on the day of Pentecost. And Peter was the first to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Peter's message, the gospel message, is the rock-solid foundation of our faith. Yet Peter's authority to act as a guide to exiles is further bolstered by his title. Apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle generally means one who is sent. Yet Jesus infused this word with greater meaning as He set apart men who were sent in His name to speak with His authority. He promises to these men that the Holy Spirit will bring to their minds all that He has spoken to them. They directly witnessed the resurrection of Christ and they were commissioned by Him to authoritatively proclaim the Gospel. The Word of God tells us that upon the foundation of the apostles, the church itself is built. For the office of the apostle was a one-time, never-to-be-repeated role given directly by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as one sent and commissioned by Christ, Peter has the right 
And He has the authority to speak and to write the very words of God. Peter is a mere man in himself. But by the authority of His office and by the working of the Holy Spirit, the words that Peter writes in this letter, which has been preserved for us through the millennia, are God's very words and are to be accepted and are to be believed and are to be obeyed as God's word. What better guide could we have in our exile? What better wisdom could we desire than this? For the wisdom of this letter is the very wisdom of God given to us, His people. This is why I have a bit of a problem with the concept of red-letter Bibles. Now, don't go throwing away your red-letter Bible or get mad at me because you love your red-letter Bible. I have a red-letter Bible myself and I love it. But the problem is, there is no section of God's Word that is more God's Word than other sections. The red letters are not more pertinent to you. They are not more God-inspired than the rest of them. For when the Apostle of Jesus Christ speaks on Jesus' behalf, Jesus speaks. And when Jesus speaks, God speaks. Every word in the Bible is God's Word. The whole Word of God. And specifically, the book of 1 Peter is your inspired, inerrant, infallible guide in this world. And so, in the year ahead, dedicate to read this book. Make it your aim to memorize To follow God's Word. Parents, teach your children. Take this opportunity to take your children through the book of 1 Peter that they might be prepared to come in each Sunday to follow the guidance of God's Word. Dedicate that this year you'll read the Cupola Express. I spend time writing it every week. Come on, read it. (laughs) Prepare yourself to follow the guide that God has given to you. For as exiles in a strange land, we must follow the words that God has so graciously given to us. It is an extremely trite but true observation that New Year's resolutions usually fail rather quickly. However, our failure to keep these plans for the new year is usually not the result of poor planning or poor intentions, but rather poor discipline, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If it were not for our weaknesses and self-discipline, we would all be marathon-running, low-carb-eating, budget-keeping, classic-lit-reading, schedule-following, early-morning Bible devotion-doers. But we're not. We try, and we fail, and we give up. And then next year we think, you know what? This year is going to be different. We're just going to give it a little bit more effort, and it's going to be different this year. However, our guide tells us That as exiles, our power to change 
does not come from our self-discipline, but rather from God's work of grace in our lives. That is, we must trust God's work and not our own. Look at the end of verse 1 into verse 2 of your text. There the Apostle says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Right off we learn that we are not merely chance exiles, but we are chosen exiles. We are elect exiles. We have been chosen to live as strangers and foreigners in this world. We have been selected to be citizens of a heavenly country. But this election was not rooted in something that we had done. Rather, the text tells us that we are exiles because of the work of the triune God. That is, we have become different. We have changed because the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. First, it says that we have been chosen as exiles by the foreknowledge of God the Father. We understand that God's foreknowledge is not some detached knowledge of God the Father. As though God the Father could look down the corridors of time. As though time was something that existed apart from God. No. The foreknowledge of God means that before the very foundations of the world, God knowing who we are and who we would be set His love completely upon us. His foreknowledge is a relational knowledge of us. And therefore, we might say that we are elect because of the eternal love of God the Father placed upon us. Prior to anything that we had done, God the Father chose us to be citizens of His country and to be exiles in this world. Second, we are exiles, we are foreigners, because of the sanctification of the Spirit. In the context of our passage, sanctification means the definitive work of setting a people apart. Of making them, as Peter says in chapter 2, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. We are chosen and holy because we have been given the Holy Spirit. Not because we have changed ourselves. Not because we have made ourselves holy. But we are holy because God the Spirit has called us to be holy in His Word. And third, we are a foreign people because of the new covenant work of the Son to shed His blood and to seal our redemption. The language that we see there in verse 2 of obedience and sprinkling with blood is meant to remind us of the covenant ceremony that was enacted at the, in, or in Exodus, rather, Exodus 24. There, the nation of Israel was constituted through a pledge to obedience and the sprinkling of sacrificial blood on the people. And as we elect exiles, are joined to a new nation and therefore separated from this world through the covenant, 
we are given the obedience and the sacrificial blood of Christ on our behalf. We are not a chosen race and a holy nation because of our work, but rather because of the work of Christ to actively obey the law on our behalf and to freely offer himself so that we might, through the sprinkling of his blood, receive the reward of entering into a new citizenship. So much of what we desire at times of reflection and renewed dedication is to recreate ourselves. That is to make ourselves in the image of an athlete or a scholar or a saint. But our guide is telling us that it is not by our power that we are recreated, but rather by the work of the triune God we become a new creation. As exiles, we must trust the work of the Father. We must trust the work of the Spirit. We must trust the work of the Son alone to change us, to make us into the holy exiles that God has called us to be. As elect exiles, citizens of a heavenly country, we must trust God's Word as our guide. We must trust God's work as our power. And finally, we must trust God's purposes as our aim. Self-actualization is seen as the pinnacle in the process of self-improvement. What it means is becoming the best version of yourself that you can be. It means reaching your personal potential and goals. Self-actualization is being all that you can be. And this is the objective of the world. It is the purpose towards which the citizens of this world must strive, for there is nothing else beyond this present world, this present country. And so the world pursues this objective of self with relentless fervor, even if it means that in the process they destroy themselves and others with them. And so often we reflect the priorities of the world. We work, we build, we save, we educate, we train, we play, we plan, we buy, we consume. We frantically claw our way to more and more achievement, more and more improvement, more and more self-realization. And the modern world has united under this one purpose. And all enemies and all obstacles will have to be destroyed so that we can achieve the objective of self. Mountains themselves will be cast into the valleys and every low place will be lifted high that we might achieve the purpose of self. That we might become the best people that we can be, achieve the most that we can achieve, and we train our children to do the very same thing. And it's all vain. It's all going away. It's all fading away. But what is God's purpose? What is God's purpose for the citizens of His country? Look at the end of verse 2. A simple benediction. A purpose. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Is that the objective? The goal? The aim? The purpose? 
of your life. Grace and peace multiplying. This is the Apostle's benediction, his blessing that he speaks over the church. Yet it's not of his own original creation. It's rooted in the early benediction of number six that I'm sure we've become very familiar with. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This has been God's purpose, His aim for His people since the beginning. Namely, that we would know His gracious favor in Christ and that we would experience His peace both now and in the kingdom that is to come. The aim, the purpose that we are called to have in this life for ourselves is that we might be the recipients of God's grace and peace. That His Word might become our food, our drink, our diet. That His Son would become our wealth. That His Spirit would become our our health and well-being, that His kingdom would become our kingdom, that His achievements would become our hope and our trust, that what we train ourselves towards is His grace and peace, that this is what we would be called to grow in, to multiply in, the grace and peace of God. How different might your life be if grace and peace were the purpose towards which you aimed your energy? How would it change what you do and what you refrain from doing? How would you arrange your calendar, your schedule, your weekends, your vacations, your early mornings and your evenings if your goal was not self, but was to live increasingly in the light of the countenance of the triune God? If you sought to follow His wisdom and not the world's wisdom. If you gave your trust for reward, for success, for achievement, for fitness and wealth and retirement completely over to the work of God Himself. Now, there might be some of you astute reformed theologians out there who are saying, wait a minute. I thought the chief end of man was to glorify God, not grace and peace for me. Well, the Westminster Confession says, yes, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But these two aims are not opposed to one another. And in reality, when we pursue the grace and peace of God, we are pursuing His glory. For this is how we glorify Him. For in pursuing His favor, pursuing His reward, we are showing how glorious and worthy He is. When we put self aside and make God the aim of our lives, we glorify Him. So what is your goal for 2019? Elect exiles. Here we have no lasting city. But we seek a city that is to come. So seek it according to God's Word. Seek it according to God's work. Seek it for your grace and peace and for His glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you now at this time and we confess that so often our thoughts are centered on self, on the exaltation of our own name. We pray, O God, that we would seek the path of humility this year that Your name might be exalted. That we might know Your grace, Your peace. And that we, in our exile, might know the surety of our inheritance, the kingdom that is coming. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.